recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba the news. Obsessed episode 285 is recorded live June 9th, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you recently from Chicago, all the way back home to the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here. It's good to be here. We're recording a little later than normal. It's almost 11 o'clock. Can you believe that? Well, like we were talking about earlier, between your traveling, adventures and travels, and me trying to make the Thursday Thursday dive and then get back on time, 9 o'clock is probably not going to happen for a while. Yeah, you know, I, I need to do, I need to get my portable rig set up again, and maybe we just go and record in a bar. We'll do a dive and then do a podcast. That would be interesting because we do have beer there. Oh, that would be. So you have beer, and then you probably have other divers, too. Uh, like I said, we had um, at the table tonight, I think we had 10. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think I think maybe that might be something to do. I'll have to figure out, uh, yeah, maybe next week. Maybe something to give it a try. That might be a little bit interesting. Spin on it for a while, do them after dives. Perfect <laughs> time of the year for it. Or we might not care about even doing them. <laughs> Very noisy place, but hey. Yeah. Uh, which which place was it that you guys were? Uh, the Friendly Tavern in Coloma. Ooh, that is a busy one. Well, you figure we get in there and they have their Thursday night special, which is a 16-ounce monster steak. Mm-hmm. With veggies and soup and for like twelve fifty, I think it is. Yeah. And it's like um, most everybody does it, cuts it in half and takes half home for lunch the next day or something because it's a huge, huge steak. Oh. Mm. Yeah, that might, that might have to be. We'll have, we'll have to think about that. I'll, I'll see if I can work it out. Hopefully I'm not traveling again. I think actually now that I say it, I think I am traveling next Thursday again. Really? Yeah, I got to be back in Chicago. Another business thing? Yeah, another thing for business. Different customer, though. Um, so I'd uh, like to thank everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have Flyboy in there. We have St. Louis Sam. Uh, we are recording. We record live, and we do a backup recording on TalkShoe. The show 73759. So if you go to TalkShoe.com, type in show 73759, um, you can take a look at our show. There's reviews. You can leave us a review, and you can also listen Live and be in the chat room. That's one way to participate. Until we come up with something else, I've been back again on the video kick trying to figure out how to make that work. And I'm getting closer. The one key trick is to this is to have huge amounts of bandwidth. So it may be a, a case of where I've got to find a location where I can get ridiculous bandwidth to be able to do it. But we'll be able to do some video then. That would be interesting. It would be something we've never done. No. No, it, it it wouldn't be. And then also, I've got a. We're we're going to get back on the website. I've got a volunteer who I I owe getting an account set up for him. So we'll get the show notes going again. But let's go ahead and jump right on into the news this week. First uh, article up is 
talking about uh, a person who's doing some paddle boarding. She had paddle boarding across England, and what do you think she may have discovered in the water? Everything else we find, which is yes. very uh, unappetizing. Yep. So she says you're finding all sorts of disgusting things in the, ca- the canal. Lizzie Carr, she says she likes being up outdoors, but she doesn't like doesn't care much for the litter. She undertook a epic journey paddling the entire length of England, documenting the state of the country's canals and waterways in the, waterways in the process. She traveled over 400 miles in 22 days. That's a lot of paddling. That is. She said it was physically exhausting. Among the finds she found was 1,600 plastic bottles, 850 plastic bags, 40 soccer balls, 24 okay, that toys. Okay, something. Keep the soccer balls. Yeah, seven pacifiers, a pair of traffic cones, trash can lid, and if you're so inclined, you can check out her journey over on her Twitter feed. I'm uh, her curious account- what her grim discoveries are. Ooh, I wonder what the grim ones are. That sounds interesting. Huh. And looking at the pictures you've got at the bottom of this, I wouldn't drink the water. No, this is... Uh, when they're canals, are you thinking that they mean that these are dredged canals from the industrial period and they've just, they might not have natural flows? I don't know. I'm going to have to take a look at her blog. I will keep this one and look at that over. Yeah. Yeah. So her. her That's an interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Her Twitter account is at L I Z Z O 010. Did you go take a look at the interview? Is that uh, the reason I said that? I, uh, hang on, let me go back one. When you're, darn it, cut that. In that first part where it says, as detailed in an interview at The Guardian, just for, you know, where it says she traveled 400 miles, mm-hmm. I clicked on that. And if you do that, you got a nice picture and it gives you a really good viewpoint of the canals and like what you just said. They don't, they look a little stagnant. <clears throat> and it got a different selection of pictures for the debris that they have found or she found. Yeah. Oh, so she looks like she's doing it to raise money for charity, uh, water aid and water trek. The 193 locks in a route were the most exhausting part. She said uh, she had a portage carrying her board of 30 kilograms of gear around that and other obstacles. Uh, yeah, so she, she's going through locks and stuff. She's going through old canal system, which might not have a good flow of water. Not that it's an excuse for the trash that's being dumped in there. Right, because the bottom picture in that series, she's mm-hmm. actually taking a breather, and you got a good viewpoint of the sides, and that yeah. looks like the typical canal that we have in Germany also. Yeah, it's where the canal's been dug. If the purpose is that they wanted to be able to move product because the advantage that water has over every other method of transportation is that water is low friction. You can move huge amounts of weight through it with just a little amount of effort. And, uh, on a canal, you would have had banks where you could have used, uh, uh, sometimes a mechanical device, a steam engine, a train, or even, uh, animals, oxen or horse could, could move a canal along. I keep uh, thinking of Erie Canal when you do that. Yeah, you could. Yeah, certainly. We got the song here. Yeah, you can almost hear it. Now, if you look at her in a photo, 
She's kind of buff, isn't she? I say that again. She's kind of what? Buff. You know, she's got some guns on her. She's been uh, from doing all the the paddling. So. Uh, yeah, I don't think she has any extra weight on her. No. Not after you know 400 miles in 22 days. Yeah. If she did, that's a hell of a workout. That would be. Maybe that's what I need. I need some sort of workout like that. I don't know what the equivalent would be around here. Uh, we don't really have canals. We got a lot of creeks and rivers, and uh, something I've always thought is interesting, but would be to go at like the source of a of a river, start at a creek, and then go all the way out to the end. But that is a lot of work in itself. And what we run into is we got a lot of trees across the rivers. Well, you figure the St. Joe River starts up in Hillsdale is 126 miles to get from there to Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you just got yourself a junket there, buddy. A junket? Yeah, something to do there, you know. Yeah. Now, do you want to use a float board or you want to do a kayak? Uh, you know, I kind of like the look of this paddle board. I, I'm sure I'd fall in. <laughs> but it, I like the, the perspective it looks like you get. You know, yeah. being up high. Yeah. Uh, and I've always kind of been, I mean, this kind of probably sounds wimpy, afraid of uh, kayaks. Uh, my parents are big kayakers. Uh, they they used to have a couple big sea kayaks, and they would, that for many years, they kayaked constantly. Uh, but I get Charlie horses real bad. From I would not want to be in a, car, in a kayak and get a Charlie horse. How do you get a Charlie? I mean, why would you do that in a kayak? I've, I don't know, but why not? I mean, I get them scuba diving too. Ah, and all uh, I know is one of them on my kayak, and I'm towing a float, meaning uh, another in a, a raft behind me. Uh-huh. If it's flat, it ain't a big deal. But man, you got any kind of wind or wave action? It's a pain in the butt to be towing something with a kayak. Oh, I bet. Well, to give this a butt, you know. Yeah. It looks like she's got a crowd crowdfunding thing she was doing through Just Giving. There's just so many good ideas you're coming across. We just don't have the time to do that. Yeah. I mean, work is getting in your way of doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, her her Just Giving page, she had raised 320 pounds out of a goal of 3,000, only 10% raised. Goodness, with all the publicity she's got, she's not had a heck of a lot of progress on this. That's kind of sad. She did her part. Yeah. There were some good comments on some of that also, that pretty much everybody knows about it Mm -hmm. because everybody's talking about it, but how many people are doing something about it? Yeah. Well, in around here, and I I can't tell you when the last time we've done it. In fact, tonight was, uh, there was uh, the the state, what do they call that branch? I know, I know the person, a friend of mine who, who runs the, the outreach, but it's part of the state of Michigan. Uh, they, they held a seminar tonight on how to reduce farm pollution into the creeks and rivers, uh, shoreline protection. So that was tonight. Uh, well, something's going on with the river at Pawpaw because I think the biz tonight, if you were lucky, was three feet. Hmm. Anybody following me said that that's a lot of visibility if you, <laughs> as long as you weren't around me. And Kevin went out deep. He was looking for one of the wrecks. He was uh-huh. out at 50 and says, once you get past 30 foot, there's a nice, um, like a smog layer, like you uh-huh. see here. He said, once you got under that, you could see with a light pretty good, 10 foot or so. 
Mm-hmm. Turns the light out and it's black. You know, and I've run into that before in Pawpaw. That's it. But, but you got to get pet through that. Is it? Was it a, not quite a thermocline? Was it? It's a thermocline. Oh, okay. Well, thermocline. We're really interested to see what's going to be on. Uh, still don't know if we're going to go out on Ann Arbor Five on Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. Now they went on Ann Arbor Five last week, didn't they? No, we did not. We got blown off. Uh, we went oh. to uh, Lake Sixteen. Okay. And did a deep dive there. Kevin was trying out his doubles and his uh, heavy-duty equipment for the deep dive. Okay. And we had quite a few people. We were the uh, second group, and the third group came after we left. Wow. Popular place, popular place. Well, uh, Alert Diver, which is Dan's publication, has an article on sunscreen pollution. They said that it is serious and increasingly clear that it is a threat to coral. And it, uh, this is really interesting uh, because a lot of it is not necessarily divers mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of the divers are wearing rash suits, so they don't need that. Yeah, you've got pretty good uh, R value with a with a thin rash suit. Uh-huh. Uh, but what it is, it's the swimmers who are silk screening up and they're getting in the water. The ingredients are readily absorbed through the skin, oxybenzone. One of the most common ultraviolet blocking chemicals in sunscreen, for example, can be detected in urine within 30 minutes of application. Wow. When you flush your toilet or wash off the sunscreen to shower, the chemicals from the lotion enter the sewer. For towns near coral reefs and without sophisticated sewage treatment and management systems, the pollution is rather inadvitable. They said sunscreen lotions do not threaten every single coral reef in the world. Sunscreen and other personal care products, however, do threaten the coral reefs that are in that are the most important to people. Those that are in focal reasons of uh, focal points of tourism, as well as the fringing reefs that are critical to protecting coastlines from erosion. In October 2015, uh, toxicological effects of oxybenzone on coral living. They found that oxybenzone includes coral bleaching by lowering the temperature at which your corals will bleach when exposed to prolonged heat stress. It also showed the oxybenzone is genotoxic, meaning it damages coral DNA as well as induces severe and lethal deform, dorf, uh, deformal, uh, I want to say formalities, but, uh, deformities. Deformities? Deformities. That's it. That's the word. Most alarming, we determined that oxybenzone also acts as an endocrine disruptor, causing the coral larvae to inappropriately encase itself in its own stony skeleton at a time in its development which should not even have a skeleton. Research demonstrated that the pathologicallys can occur. Why can't I speak tonight? You didn't have a beer. That's what I, I missed the beer. Well, actually, I did have a beer. That was part of the. (laughs) The, the end of the business meeting. Uh, pathologies can occur in concentrations as low as 62 parts per trillion. Now, that pers- is freaking small. That is very small. For perspective, beaches in Hawaii have oxybenzone levels higher than 700 parts per trillion early in the morning before swimmers even arrive. Well, that tells you it's not from the divers. Well, and that, that's what their point is. They're saying that that you put this on your skin, your body absorbs it, and then you pee it out. We're finding that a lot of the things, even 
just because it doesn't kill us, we're passing it in through the water systems. Uh, and that, that goes into a whole other thing is like pharmaceuticals. There are so many pharmaceuticals we take, and I'm not saying don't take your meds. Please take your meds. Uh, but the, many of the waste medicine. treatment systems aren't able to handle processing out medications. And people don't realize that. They really don't. No. And that's something we need to look at. We need to, to invest in better waste treatment. Uh, I mean, actually, some of the best waste treatment is septic systems, which not, you can't do in heavily uh, populated area, but that's all being filtered through the sand and, it, and the ground, and it has a lot of time for these elements to break down, which in your municipal waste systems, they're about efficiency, and there's not a lot of time to break it down. So if they're not uh, treating it with some sort of chemical process or mechanical process, uh, it'd be interesting. We should ask one of our experts uh, on this because I know we have a few uh, in the dive club who could explain to us how long it takes in a waste treatment plant. You know, from the time water enters, you know, time they flush, and that makes it to the, the beginning of the waste treatment plant, how many days before that water is being released into the uh, creeks and rivers? So this article from Dan goes on, and they cite many different things. And it's getting to the point uh, where we really seriously need to look at it. It's just not whether you're in sensitive environments, but if you're in any environment. Now, uh, how do, is this – we're talking about coral, which we don't have corals in the freshwater. Do we have – uh, parts of our environment that are being affected by this in in the Great Lakes. There's another article we're not we're, we're not going to talk about this time, but it was um, like you were saying runoffs, mm-hmm. different chemicals, and we're also talking chemicals from flushing it into toilet into the waste water system. Yeah, that is making a difference, and that's becoming more. You know what? It, what the old saying used to be. The solution to pollution is dilution, meaning put it in the water and it'll... It'll dilute out. You know, the, right. the and that's several not, trillion gallons and one gallon won't make a difference. Right. And it does. Yeah. And then we have lionfish threatens to gobble up Florida's seafood industry. The lionfish, which has no predators in an ever never-ending appetite is threatening Florida's multi-billion dollar seafood industry. A UMFU uh, report says that Floridans are cracking down on the lionfish and cooking it up. So this, this is another article where they're talking about let's eat them. It's, what's interesting is Lionfish used to be protected, basically. They said, don't mess with them. Right. When they invaded that side of the country down there by Florida, uh-huh. it's now the invasive species. And look what it's doing. Yeah. And people are saying, well, what about the big head carp, silverhead carp that are making its way up towards the Great Lakes? Mm-hmm. That's going to be just like what the lionfish is doing here. It's going to do that to Lake Michigan. Yeah, I agree. Now, they're talking about eating it. Why don't we see lionfish in the supermarket? If it's that tasty and it's that easy to get, wouldn't you create some sort of 
commercial fishery? I, I would think processing is harder. Like they said, it, you've got what, 18 spines that sting like bees? Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to be delicate when you take it apart and fillet it. And I'm thinking of time, so how much does it cost to prepare that as opposed to a fish that doesn't sting you? Mm-hmm. So I think that would be a little bit prohibitive, maybe. Yeah. Cost. So the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission announced new incentives for catching 50 or more lionfish. They're giving away T-shirts honoring fishing man, fishermen with a place in the Lionfish Hall of Fame. Whoever bags the most fish will be crowned Florida's lionfish king or queen. Also holding uh, statewide lionfish derbies and tournaments target the fish. Well, like when I was down there, uh, you go in any dive shore, a store. Mm-hmm. Down there, they have a lot more aggressiveness, meaning spear guns, Hawaiian slings, and whatever. Yep. They have traps for these. So it's a big deal to go down and capture those now. And I do hear they taste good. Well, that's what I keep hearing. So somebody could you know, cook some up or freeze some up and send them to us. I bet there's ways to get it here. We'll have to talk to Dave. Dave Faulkner, who moves down there. Yeah. We'll have to ask him. I can't believe he, he would not have caught some and eaten some yet. You would think so, but maybe he thinks it looks like a turtle. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, he does not like turtles, especially yeah. in the river. Yeah, he, he was our dive buddy who was pretty hardy. Yep. Uh, yep. He would get it and do everything, but he is not a fan of turtles. No, he doesn't like the river for that. Snapping turtles. Now, turtles. Now, if a uh, lionfish is tasty, I wonder what this giant squid is like. A study is, uh, this according to divephotoguide.com, giant squid grows larger than a bus. I thought, you know, the, the small ones are tender, but the big ones aren't. Oh, the of the squid? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing 66 feet in length. It might be a little tough. I don't think I'd want to run into him personally. A lot of people believe all sorts of stuff about giant squid would actually isn't what the evidence said, including that is a kraken and that is pretty small. This is Charles Paxson, a statistical ecologist at Scottsford University in St. Andrews and the study's sole author, he told National Geographic. The rarity and size of giant squid makes for challenges keeping them in captivity. Thus, little is known about the uh, cephalopods including their maximum size. Paxton used data from at least 100-plus years of squid sighting images and measurements to calculate the relationship between the squid size and mantle. In theory, his research suggests that a squid with a measured mantle of those already documented could grow 100 feet in length. So they're saying even bigger than what was believed to be a topping out about 60 or 70. So 100 feet, that's pretty good. Well, you hear about the... the Tentacles going across the boat, sinking. Mm-hmm. Well, those boats in the old days were, what, 100, 110 foot? Oh, yeah. That's half your boat right there. That would get your attention. It sure would. It'd make you not want to go for a little dip in the water. I, I'd be cautious, that's for sure. And I think this is out of Madison, Wisconsin. I'm assuming it's Madison. Uh, they have volunteer divers are cleaning out Lake Monona. 
They said it's just our way of giving back to Lake, getting in there and taking some of the trash that normal person cannot get to, says Joanne Hoffman, a scuba instructor at Madison Scuba. Our organization sponsors event, providing volunteer divers all the gear they need to dive in and clean up litter and other debris. We just kind of skim right along in front and have a good dive, says Hoffman. For volunteers, it was a chance to get some scuba time in while helping out the community and the event. We want to make sure that the fish are happy and healthy. We don't want a bunch of pollutants down there, said uh, volunteer diver Eric Volk. Uh, the healthier the fish are, the more fun it is to dive with them. When I'm scuba diving and not thinking about anything else or worrying about anything, it's just focus on what's going on underwater, says volunteer diver Julie Wall. The focus on protecting the lake and the wildlife from items that don't belong. Divers have found a variety of items, including a beer can, a pie pan, couple chairs off the roof. Uh, I'm sure they found even more stuff than that. I, bet, I wonder if they found a, a, golf, a golf ball. I can't believe they would not have. Yeah, because if they don't find a golf ball, it's not a real dive. Right. But we keep, you know, we keep seeing these, and we have not done a purely ecology dive. In a long time. In year and years. Yeah, we need to do that. We need to, uh, maybe that's some, another effort. Here we are in June. Uh, the problem we ran into was just getting sponsors. It takes a lot of logistics to put on these ecology dives. So it, maybe, it, it does. It's like, it's hard to get people to agree to do anything anymore. Yeah. And I'm not sure why. I think what we need to do on those is that we need to do it more than just divers. Maybe we could come up with some sort of like teams. Because if you had a diver, and, like, say you got a fisherman in a boat, just think of how much more garbage you could bring up. Well, that's what we used to do in the ecology dive. I'd have somebody follow me in a boat, and I'd load the boat up. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's what we need to do. We need to, to get some, uh, you know, maybe we could partner with a yacht club or something and, and get you something know, going what, on. What the items about that, people keep saying, why should I take my time to go help you clean up your garbage? And, you know, you can't really think of it that way. No, that mo- that garbage came from the surface. I doubt it was, I mean, and I, I, I'm saying there are instances where you have somebody throws their beer can over the side of the boat, but most of the stuff that we're finding in there did not originate it. It's the can that you threw uptown, and the wind blew it and caught it and rolled it off to the edge of the bridge and then went down the embankment and in the river, you know, or the cigarette butts or the plastic bags. Uh, I mean, uh, last ecology dive we did, but there's probably a thousand items in total found. I found almost 300 myself. So yeah, more easily. Than- yeah, and that's just a handful of divers. If you had some, there used to be initiatives uh, where they used to pick a river and they would do it. Uh, and they still do that, but generally around here it's the, the uh, bank cleanup. Yes. And it's for a short duration. They'll take the chainsaws and they'll, you know, try to make a nice little path for a couple of hundred yards. But, you know, when you got a 126 mile long river, oh, yeah. you don't see a lot of change. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, I, I think we need to get on that. I think we need to get something going. And then we have NASA who's planning on doing some studies. They're, they're going to be, they think they're going to be able to do it from the sky. Well, I see no reason why not since they track submarines from satellites. Yeah. So what they're going to do, which is a little bit different this time, 
is that they're talking about mounting equipment on high-flying jets. They said Coral, which is the Coral Reef Airborne Laboratory, a three-year-long project launched in Thursday by NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab to study Pacific Ocean's coral reefs from above. The coral will provide the most extensive picture to date of the condition of the large portion of the world's coral reefs from a uniform data set, NASA's Jet Propulsion writes in a press release. The data, the data will reveal trends between coral reef condition and biogeophysical forces, both natural and those arising from human activity. With a new understanding of the reef condition, we better protect, predict for the future of this global ecosystem and provide policymakers. So what they're going to do is they're going to uh, install portable remote imaging spectrometer, PRISM, in a commercial plane. In situ data are obtained to validate remote observations. In other words, coral researchers receive data from the Pacific key corals around Hawaii, uh, Palau, a Great Barrier Reef, without touching the water. The idea is to get a new perspective on coral reefs from above, to study them at larger scale than we have been able to before, and then relate reef conditions to the environment. So they're going to measure three things, the primary productivity, the calcification, their relative amounts of coral, algae, and sand. Coral researchers record these findings and ratios as a baseline comparison to future assessments. So it sounds like you're going to combine on the ground source and say, here's what we see in the ground. Looking at that same photo taken from a plane, this is what it means. So when they get a photo of a spot where they might not have people, they can kind of do the same association. Right. It's actually very important. Uh, they were saying the, uh, even last month, some of the coral experts from Cook University found that 35% of the corals in the northern and central sections of the Pacific Ocean's Great Barrier Reef have died from bleaching. 35%. You know, I've seen that. Um, I'm just having a hard time believing that number. I mean, it's, it's possible. But well, they said the phenomenon of, uh, that occurs there when abnormally warm waters spur symbiotic algae to leave the coral. So part of it is they're, they're continuing to talk about global warming, and they're talking about the warming of the oceans, mm-hmm. not necessarily of the landmass. Right. Well, what I, I mean, not to go and debate uh, global warming, but what I want to understand on this is because we, we've had these bleaching events before, which is usually warm water related, but the corals came back. So are we just talking about, is this kind of like a drought for a tree where it just doesn't do anything for a year, but then it comes back? Are they talking about these corals are dead and done, and until new coral seeds itself on these reefs, uh, they're dying? So. Well, it doesn't tell me how long they've been doing it to get that sort of, you know, 35% over how many years. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. So you're saying that, are they talking about that 35% of the mass over the years at one point or another has been bleached? Right. You know, and they're adding it together. Are they saying this year, 2016, 30% is bleached right at this moment? Yeah, it's hard to tell because a lot of it depends on what headlines you want to do. Uh, well, here's another. This is is this an article from Dan? 
Mac, the planning right. your dives? It's, it's from the Dan magazine, mm-hmm. and uh, it, we're not going to talk about it because it's very long. But if you went to the link that you're going to provide them, it's called Planning Your Dives. And it's stuff that divers should know, and most of us probably do. But by reviewing this kind of document, like developing an emergency assistant plan, Mm -hmm. if you've not thought about it, you haven't done it. Well, you know what would be nice would be to actually go through the steps and and maybe we just – because you could make a little kit that, a little PDF file. They could put on the website, and people could fill it out because yeah. that's part of it. Right, and we do part of that, remember, because we filled out your medical, if you wanted a medical item, mm-hmm. we have that in our dive book. So if you're with us on a dive, we have all your history, and it's folded up in such that we can't, nobody can go there and pilfer through it and see what kind of issues you have or meds you take. Right. But it's there plasticized that if you had an accident, that can be given with whoever takes you to the dock. Yeah. the ambulance, and they have your history right there. Right. We do that. We have that uh, pre-dive briefing before we dive. We talk about post-dive briefings. We have the uh, club dive kit that we take. This kind of stuff that people need to be proactive in doing and thinking about. And we've been talking about you go dive, and if you have not practiced your emergency drills, you need to be doing that. Simply mm-hmm. hang on the line during your 10 minutes or your uh, – 10 foot stop, start doing your pony bottle. Yeah. Do some sharing. Um, we practiced that a couple of weeks ago, and it's like, oh, damn, I'm sure glad I didn't need this at 130 because my regulator wasn't putting not enough air. I mean, I could breathe at 10 foot, 130, it wouldn't have worked. And that was my bailout. Needless to say, I got that fixed real quick. Yeah, the, the, the one item that you want to make sure is always working is that one when, you know, we're doing deep dives. And, you know, we may, I made the assumption since it worked last time, I did not check it before I went into the water. I'm just glad I didn't need it. But a lot of the stuff we know, but this is a really good article. It's too long. Uh, it's got dive preps. It has forms you can fill out, checks you can do, diving etiquette. You know, what if you're on a cattle boat? What should you be doing when they're doing a briefing? And what you, what should you not be doing? So Buddy Guidelines talks about health, and that's a big one. There was a big article on the aging diver, mm-hmm. and this is the aging flyer, the aging skydiver. And the, the numbers seem to be anytime it's over 55, they're, they're saying you really be need, needing to be taking care of yourself and paying attention to what kind of ailments that you have. That Just because you did something last year doesn't mean you can do it this year. Right. And these, it's food for thought when they, you start looking at this. So it's really interesting. It's, it's worthwhile taking the time to read it. It's a little extensive, but hey, a good refresher. Okay. I'm going to skip this next article because I think it's just a big giant promotion. <laughs> Finding Dora? Yeah. I'm waiting for that movie to come out, man. I'm ready for that. I, I've heard that's going to be a good movie. So have I. And I hope it is. Good as the first one. Oh, the the first one was just a beautiful, just amazing. Uh, the only bad thing is, I I guess uh, a lot of the people who grab up uh, aquarium fish, which I love aquarium fish, don't get me wrong, but that there was definitely a lot of stress put on the clownfish because everybody wanted some. <laughs> bad. Uh, then here's one is a is a story about how a sunken jet 
could promote biodiversity. Retired A300 Airbus is getting a new mission at the Aegean Sea in hopes of reviving a coral reef and tourism after a series of terrorist attacks in Istanbul. Hundreds of onlookers gathered to watch divers and cranes successfully handle a 177-foot-long A300 Airbus submerged in the Aegean Sea on Saturday. Uh, they were charged with lowering the plane 75 feet down onto the seafloor in hopes of making an ocean oasis to draw fish, sea plants, and scuba divers. The reef was planted off the coast of the Turkish town Kashudishai. I'm sure glad you do the enunciation. <laughs> I don't, I'm sure that's not right. Where local <laughs> officials are hoping to increase scuba diving related tourism. Diving activities are already part of the resort and port of call the town's tourism roster, which includes marinas, seaside promenade, and the proximity to the Byzantine ruins. Our goal is to make it a center of diving tourism. And I am not even attempting that name. There are letters. I have no idea what they're supposed to sound like. There's a demon O, C with tails, the G with who knows what on it. Oslim Keshkugli, <laughs> the mayor, <laughs> who's now probably paying slipped ISIS 20 bucks to hunt me down. Uh, our goal is to protect the underwater life, and with these goals in mind, we have witnessed one of the biggest wrecks in the world. Uh, okay. Oh, it says her administration. Okay. Her administration purchased a plane for about $93,000. Wow. Could, could you think we could get that here? Yes. 93000 you think we could oh, get money? No, we get an airplane, but not that much. But well, how many airplanes do we have in the quarries around here? Bunches of them. You do, but those why are smaller ones. I mean, this true. is a... A big one, but do you know why it's easier to get one of those and sink it than a boat? Because the airlines want rid of them. <laughs> well, one, you don't have the fiberglass. You don't have the asbestos. Uh -huh. You don't have the engine aspects and oil and loops. Yeah, because you can drop the engine right off. So all you're yeah. left is whatever's in the plane. Yeah, naked frame. Huh? That's why we have so many in our quarries. And they're relatively cheap. Your hard part is transporting. That's where your money is. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, is, there, is this a possibility for... Lake Michigan. You know, we've talked about ships, which it doesn't seem like we've been able to get any of those going. Well, I'll tell you what. You know what we've been doing the last couple of Friday nights, right? Yeah. So if we wind up finding those three I'm looking for, we'll have three airplanes. There you go. I said, the use of man-made materials to create artificial reefs where aquatic life can form and congregate. It's a tactic that's been used throughout the world. These reefs often used to construct... Uh, or replace an ecosystem that are struggling to face of vanishing coral reefs. So, excellent. I'm glad. Here's another quote. Did you see this? According to World Wildlife Foundation, 25% of the world's coral reefs are damaged beyond repair, and an additional two-thirds are seriously threatened. Yeah, that's possible. And then you look at, there's many of them that we've been, Damaging recently, uh, dredging projects. There's, there's been a lot of fighting going on that one in, uh, is it Georgia where they're doing that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not, uh, there's a lot of issues going on. Did you realize I was on the largest coral reef head? No. Last week. And did you know that Chicago has 11 of them? 
No, I didn't. Yeah. You know where that is, of course. No. Where did I go last week? Oh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you went to the uh, the stone quarry. Yes, sir. And the one of the undisturbed sections is that coral head. Ah. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Like I said, it takes three to five years to get a ticket. And uh, I signed up last time I was there, and it only took me three years to get back. Mm-hmm. But it is fun. It's well worth the tour. And I love the part where I get to go look for my fossils after the end of the presentation. Excellent. So much for global warming, huh? Yeah. <laughs> that was a tropical sea 400 billion years ago. Million yeah. years ago. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll have to do an episode sometime. We'll have to get uh, some pros and cons and everybody kind of go around. Because those those are some of my questions that I'd like to say. How can they explain that? You know, or what is their, you know, why are they saying that things are one way now and different then? Well, here we have an amazingly preserved remains of a 19th century wagon that was discovered in Detroit Lake. Detroit Lake was at its lowest level in 46 years. Under Detroit Lake, which recorded low water levels in October 2015, the abandoned town of Old Detroit has emerged. Marion County Sheriff's Deputy Dave Zahn was one of the few people who spotted this 19th century Utility wagon lakeside in the mud. At the time, Detroit level is 143 feet below capacity when Oregon's Detroit Lake to take pictures, when he went to Oregon's Detroit Lake to take pictures of the old Detroit, a 200-person town abandoned and flooded in the 1950s after the Detroit Dam was built. I was thinking this is Detroit, Michigan, but they're talking about this is someplace else. In late October, the lake was at its lowest level, took the opportunity to walk the river line to see what's out there more of a treasure hunt. I went in a treasure hunt down along the river, figuring I found foundation, something like that, and I saw a piece of an old history right there. Wow, look at the condition of that cart. Do you see the photo? Uh, I can show you a couple like that in the water. Man, that, that looks like that just fell in last week. Yeah, but it's not pristine, let me tell you. No, it's like not pristine, but... Pristine. Some of this stuff, I mean, it was a lot of this stuff was used before it flooded. I'd like to know what that emblem on the on that beam going through the middle of it is. Yeah, they got the nameplate. Yeah, it looks like a plate of something. I'd love to see what that looks like, and if it's brass. Yeah. Yeah, two hundred person town of Old Detroit existed from eighteen eighty to nineteen fifty two, and was abandoned in preparation for the construction of a new dam that would flood the area, created the reservoir called Detroit Lake. Every winter when the spillways at Detroit Dam are open to make room for spring snowmelt, parts of the old town become visible above water. Low oxygen levels at the bottom of the lake kept the wagon in pristine condition, but there was no record of the wagon ever being discovered before. The water levels haven't been as low as they were in October 2015 since 1969. Well, the thing with that wagon is that was not being actively used in 1952. So that was probably somebody's decoration. Possible. That's in Oregon, by the way. Yes. The wagon was discovered along with a nearby concrete octagonal pit that was yet to be identified. Huh, that is an interesting looking pit. Now that one is, yeah. I'd make a hell of a fire pit. Yeah, it has a it's post in the under, middle. Been what, 20 foot underwater? Yeah. Huh. 
no one uh, able to identify. Uh, It'd be really interesting to know why, why and how that got there. That pit, yeah. That's a lot more interesting than the wagon. <laughs> it is. Well, because that looks like some sort of cement object. As you see, look, it goes a poured cement. Oh, yeah. And it, I mean, it's a defined item. And now I'm seeing a much better picture of that wagon. It's not just a two-wheeler. It's an actual buck. Um, it's got sidewalls on it. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was like the kind you see in the old Western movies where. Yeah, that, that's cool there. Yeah. You see the stumps in the background? Yeah. Here, scanning on this, you'd come up with a big bump and think it's a stump. Oh, exactly. Well, the, the thing with stumps is that's something that happened around here in Michigan too, is that they really weren't good in preparing for these lakes. So what would happen is you had, you'd have all these trees that would be growing. So what happens, you'd flood the lake. And the trees that were there, of course, they can't survive in the water, so they die. So you have these dead trees all out of the water. Then somebody comes along and uh, cuts them down right at about the water level. Yeah. So then you get people with speedboats coming and chewing out the bottom of their boats because you got all these stumps six inches below the water. Uh, Carla Kelly told the Statesman Journal, Journal the wagon was probably damaged more than a in the week that has been on land than the decades it has lurked underwater. Kelly asked that the wagon's exact location be kept secret to protect it from vandals. Oh, my goodness. Something left in 1950 is now all of a sudden some sort of secret object. Preserved beneath the reservoir's waves of low-oxygen environment, the wagon's probably more damaged during its appearance. So why are they protecting this now? One of a kind. Oh, goodness. Because this is trash. This is something somebody left. Yeah. We'd pick it up. If we found it, we'd probably just leave it just because it's not worth the effort. But that nameplate would definitely find its way somewhere. Uh, it might not have been an original resting place. It could have come from anywhere in the town of Detroit, even up the drainage. The flood of 1964 moved a lot of things, even brought houses down. Lake was just covered with logs and debris back then. It could be decades before Detroit Lake. You are unmuted. Hello, we're back. One more time. Yeah. You still have anybody in the chat room? Oh, yeah, we got a few people in the chat room. Oh, you mean they didn't leave? That's what's called dedicated hardcore people. Yeah, I've been ignoring the chat room. I... Oh, say that I'm so. Voice talked about doing, sending out the links to all the stories right before the podcast. So maybe I'll do that. I need to something along those lines. We were talking about the trees. I uh, found the article I was looking for. The underground forest of oak, ash, and hickory tree stumps submerged mm -hmm. 15 miles off Chicago's coast. Divers found 50 tree stumps 85 feet below the surface of the lake. Three of the stumps were covered for radiocarbon dating were 8,200 years old. So the trees grew during the early part extreme, extremely low post-glacial lake phase known as Chippewa low phase. Okay. I just gave them all the show notes. Uh, but I still think that wagon's interesting. Yes, it is. And then the last one is a story about a somebody who's being recognized. 
the link in the show notes is to uh, uh, Doppler.wordpress.com. That's Steve Lewis blog. He is, Steve Lewis is a technical diver who does a lot of deep dives, uh, rebreather diving, and also does training and other activities. One of his friends, who's a well-known diver, Jill Heinerth, has just been appointed Explorer-in-Residence by the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. This is a first, and a quote from the RCGS website, the Explorer-in-Residence program is intended to foster greater awareness among Canadians for the explorations and field research being carried out by the nation's top explorers, scientists, and conservationists. Now, that's cool. I don't want... I don't care who you are, but that is awesome. That's this is a a quote from Steve Lewis. Uh, so that is is amazingly cool. Yes. Uh, so congratulations to Jill Heinerth. Uh, I know she's received all sorts of recognition, but she just keeps going and going and going and uh, diving all the time, and that's what we like to see. Yeah. You do what you can as much as you can. Yeah. She obviously didn't do it for this award, but it's nice for her to be recognized. This is interesting. I'm going to have to say this, Matt. That goes under scuba. Did you see some of the other side notes over here? Getting side mount tanks to behave themselves and sit where they should. Daily limits for CNS oxygen toxicity. Oh, you mean uh, Steve Lewis's blog? Well, that Doppler Tech diving blog. Yeah, that's that's Steve Lewis. Uh Right. Uh, Jim Schultz and I dove with him. He's the one who who got us trying out some rebreathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is a diver on his own. I mean, he is certainly a hardcore, experienced diver. A lot of involvement. He does a lot of deep dives. He's done some mine dives uh, where they've documented uh, deep underwater mines and uh, does quite a bit of consulting in the dive industry. So. Uh, value a lot of what he does in his blog is definitely one of those must read uh, type of places. As a side note, you know, they really are trying to get nitrox over at Wolf's. Yes, yes. Uh, it, yeah, and we're done. So let's jump. Uh, we're done with the scuba in the news. Uh, yeah, uh, Jim Schultz has been working really hard on getting uh, nitrox in at Wolf's. So they've got a they've got banks that they're going to fill. They've been making upgrades to the compressor, uh, getting everything all uh, all aligned. He's gotten training to be able to do nitrox. So that'll be nice. I'd be curious to see what it costs. But right now, I still think they are talking O2 clean, which I don't think a lot of guys are going to be doing, since I know at least five people who blend their own. If I need it, I get it from them. I always have mine. Anytime I have my my dives vised, I always have O2 clean. So for me, that's not a big deal. Other than you have to maintain that strictly for nitrox. Right, but I, I pretty much all my tanks are filled at Wolf's. So as long as they're keeping up to the purity standards, I'm fine. I mean, I don't have my own compressor. I'm not going to some shady outfit that might not have clean air. I mean, is there other things I should be concerned with? Depends. What do you mean? On, on diving? Well, just on, you know, because you said you have to maintain it. What would be things that would 
violate my maintaining of uh, O2 clean? Uh, have a have it filled at some other place with not just straight either O2 or uh, high quality, high purity of nitrox. So if I if I refill it back at Wolf's, but I have them just put air in, that that will negate the O2 clean. The way they're talking, it appears to be that way. Huh. It is, it's an interesting one because they're being conservative from the aspect of. I think they're going to do a premix forty, and after that they can, uh, you know, tweak it down if you want three eight or three six. Well, I I was under the impression they were going to try to do O2 clean. Well, to me, and most people don't. Yeah, and and agree, uh, again, anybody who's listening, don't take anything that we're talking about is the the truth. You have to go and get it from official sources. But to me, the reason why you have to be O2 cleaned is if you're doing partial pressure. Right. There's so some if you, so if you put if you put pure oxygen in your tank, and then you fill it with air to get it to whatever mix. In that moment in time where you're putting full oxygen into that that tank and you have some sort of compression, you know, a shock of air or you drop the tank or something, if you have any hydrocarbons in there, which could just be oils from your hands or any impurities that have been in there or the last cleaning that somebody did the tank that didn't they clean it out properly, uh, you have a you have an explosion risk. So, but if you're going to do banked air. Uh, and you've got O2 friendly equipment, meaning you got valves that aren't overly restrictive. It seems like you should, your risk is less. I'm not saying you don't have to be clean, but it's, you're not at the same risk as if you're going with 100% oxygen into a tank. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Or it's of a different color. Well, plus my thing, what I would kind of give them grief on is, so you're going to force me to always fill with nitrox at your own dive shop because on the day I can't afford the extra however many dollars for it, you're then going to your other compressors putting crap in my tank? <laughs> well, you don't really know what else the people are doing with their tanks. Well, right, but you don't know. I mean, they you're going on the honor system. I mean, somebody could say, oh, I've never had anything other than Wolf's Nitrox in here. A lot of places won't fill up your tank if you don't have a current VIP sticker. Oh, they're not supposed to, right. And my, my, my tank, so like right now if you look at my tank, it has a current VIP sticker on it. And it has an O2 clean label, uh, not an O2 clean, but it has a Nitrox label on it. And I've had the same individual, which many of us in the dive club have, to do the O2 clean and the inspection. But I'm, you know, I'm, right now we're, I'm going off of hearsay, so it'd be nice to hear from <laughs> how how they say it is. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and, and they and they got their reasons. I mean, if that's how they're going to say it, I, you know, it's not mine to say it has to be a different way. I just would be kind of... Because you know, I've had O2 from a variety of stores... You know, when I travel, and most of them are are not, I, I think they're maybe a little too uh, casual on it. Because some of them are doing partial pressure. So I don't know, is it based on experience? I mean, if you 
do nitrox for 20 years and you never have an issue, do you just assume that everything must be good then? I don't know. All I know is I want to check my percentage before I go down. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want to know what they've got in there, not just what they say they have in. Um, and I think you're supposed to inspect like right before you go down. So even if you're at the store and many stores will have their, their gauge there and you can go and do a reading and you mark it in the side of the tank. But the, you know, the, the purists will say that when you get on the boat, you should check it one more time before you count on that being that mix that you've got written on the side of your tank. All the dive instructors are cringing because I'm saying that. <laughs> Again, I'm not a dive instructor, so please go back to your training, refer to the book, talk to your certified diving professional and get the straight answer. But that's you know, f- from what I remember of my Ditrox course. Voodoo yeah. Don't play these these uh, outlaws who are talking on the air. Yeah, yeah these the crazy guys on the on on these here podcasts. Uh, so let's talk about last week's dives. You got some. You got in the water a little bit. Uh, last episode, I got to remember now. I don't put a logbook together. <laughs> my daily one. I don't know what well, I did. That's what the podcast is for. Podcast is our logbook. <laughs> Let's see, we did Thirsty Thursday last week. I think we only had three people in the water, two on the surface. We had uh, mowing the lawn again on Friday night till midnight. And then uh, trying to remember. Oh, we then we do, we're going to do the Ann Arbor 5 on Sunday. It got blown off, so we went to Lake 16 in Martin. I think the deepest there was like 74 feet. Uh, wasn't bad. Temperature was 44 at 70 something. 44 at 70 something in Lake 16? That's, yes. that's like tropical. Uh, compared to what it is sometime, yes. It was quite balmy. Nice. How was, how was visibility again? You said that was 10 feet? Uh, let me think. I'm, I'm looking at my videos. Up high, it wasn't bad. I got some good fish pictures. Somebody put a, an old-fashioned rocking chair on top of the telephone booth. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. And the fish love it. Oh, the there, fish love the rocking chair? There are, there are some big fish hanging Now, is it one of the wicker-style chairs? Yeah. yeah. Ah, it's okay. already just, I don't know how long. It it could not have been down there during the ice dive, but we'd have seen it. No, you'd have, pop, you'd have seen that. And, and it's got a healthy, healthy coating on it. Of algae and stuff already. Yeah, because above the phone booth, you're probably only about 20-some feet there, aren't you? Yeah. And it must have been, oh, there are six rather large fish that were as long as the armchair itself oh. hanging by that. Oh. So maybe a fisherman was encouraging the planting of the chair. Well, I, I dove from the, the beach on. Actually, uh, Kevin took the boat out. I saw that it was going to be a boat dive. I think that's got to be a first for us at 16. Well, he was doing a lot of practice for a deep dive, so he was using his doubles. Now, did he have a side scan on there, seeing what the... He did not, and I said, man, you should scan the bottom. Well, because I've, I keep hearing rumors that every dive club or dive shop has a different set of objects out there, and they're not connected together. I've heard that I, there's a tech course. I've heard about the tech one. One of the guys said, at the end of the line, you find another platform. 
And I said, man, I've never seen that. And he said, well, it's sunk on the bottom. Yes. So when you come across it, that's the platform they're talking about. But, you know, you do that whole route, you're in deco when you come up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have to have uh, a lot of gas, a lot of deco, plus it's cold. And Uh honestly, as much as I – Lake 16 to me is a good early season, late season, and like you guys used it, I got blown out dive. Uh Uh-huh. And so I – and the the only downside for us is that it's about an hour to get there. Uh, a little more than an hour. Yeah, you do your dive, and then you come home, and you shot a whole day. Right, well, or, you didn't count going out to eat, because we always eat after the dive. Yeah, and if we go to, you know, the Niles River, yeah. I feel like I only use half a day. Yeah. So I can still go home and get stuff done. That's why I go to Pawpaw all the time. People, why do you like Pawpaw? Because I can go to Pawpaw, dive for an hour and a half, come home, and you're still driving, people. So, I mean, I'd love to I do the Wednesday dives with SAS, but they're on that side. You know, they're Grand Rapids. Yeah. Uh, not Grand Rapids, uh, Battle Creek. Hour and a half. Yeah. yeah depending on where they're going to dive, you got some travel time. That's the gas. Yeah, so you, you got, got the gas. travel time. Yeah. So, it's all good. I mean, it's nice to cross groups like that and get people to together. I, and, I, I go there occasionally, yeah. you know, put the cameo in. But mm-hmm. I dive solo, and they don't really like you to dive solo when you're in their group. Well, right, because they're they're a dive shop, and they're they've got a lot of new divers. For many divers, this might be their third dive. So yeah, we 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 tend to be the outlaws of diving sometimes. Some of our practices are not quite what they're supposed to be training according to the training agencies. Well, now they've got the solo diver certification. What you have to pay to get, <laughs> and I and I do agree with a lot of things in it. They're a little stricter than maybe what we are doing, but they're not necessarily bad ideas. I when I'm solo diving in unknown places, or I'm going past my 15 foot grubbing yes. on the side, I carry a bailout. Yeah. yeah, and that's one of the things that they advocate is carrying a bailout. Oh yeah, um, they want you, you, and you definitely want a redundant system. Yep, and they're talking about uh, making sure that you've got uh, a dive plan filed with somebody and that you you let them know when you go in and when you get out. Yep. So there's there's more to it, but uh, that's good. So we got some got some good dives in. So yep, there's and, some, some night. I think we had uh, ten people, nine or ten people in. Now, did Dave Tunneman? Did he go and do Lake Sixteen? Uh, no, he did not. He went to Lake Cora and took some more students out. Oh, okay. And I heard the visibility was pretty good there. Excellent. Yeah, because I knew he was in town. He was going to give me a call and I have to give him grief because he didn't. But I was, I was crazy. Class on Saturday. He had a class on Saturday. Yeah, he had a class on Saturday and they were going to do a dive Sunday. But Well, I they had... did a class and then they did dive, my understanding, Cora on Saturday. And then he went back on Sunday since he got blown off because he was going to go on the wreck with us. Yeah, that would have been a great. I mean, that's seems like there's something cursed with Lake uh, the. Uh, Ann Arbor 5 recently. Well, when you're out there, you like to have two boats or at least have a boat with two different motors. Yeah. You want to be able to get back in. When you're going that far out in Lake Michigan, if the weather's not perfect, it just doesn't make sense. Right, because they're talking about going early, 9 o'clock, which is really early to me, but 9 o'clock. Yeah, and and it's a 16-mile boat ride out there. 
which, you know, when we're talking some of the other wrecks, it's a five, you know, four or five mile boat ride. So that's a little bit of a trip. Well, yeah. And then like the Havana stuff, you're talking a mile offshore. Yeah. Rockway mile offshore. Yeah. Max so wreck. You could, yeah. you could swim the shore. Yeah. Or drift in or something. Yeah. You might paddle, drift. Eight miles, nine miles. Uh, I'm no, not. No, that's. Yeah. You, you try and swim the shore from eight, nine miles out, you could very well end up in Chicago or Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, especially if there's a wind or current. Yeah. I'm more afraid of those big ocean freighters out there because they're not going to see you paddling in the water. No, but that's kind of like hitting a needle in a haystack. Other than. <laughs> <laughs> you're, just, you're just that bad of luck. Yeah. All I know is when we do this at night, if it were not flat and being able to do a good scan, I would have a vest on, mm-hmm. I would have a strobe light on, and I'd oh. have my freaking dry suit on. Because yeah. you toss something overboard, or you look 10 feet behind your boat at, at midnight, you can't see squat. No. You don't want to fall out of that boat. Yeah, I'm, I'm inter- I need to do a, I don't know if I've ever done a night dive in Lake Michigan. I've done night dives in other locations. About every other location I've ever dove, I've done a night dive. But I've yet to do one, I think, in Lake Michigan. Huh. I have to corral Jim, my dive buddy, and get him out. Uh, but this last week was a lot of uh, graduations. Oh, we yeah. The high school graduation and graduation parties, so I've been doing that constantly. And I think I still got a couple, two more, three more weeks of that going on uh, all the way to uh, mid-July. Yeah, see, that's a kicker. When we had kids in school, I concur. No, not hardly. Yeah, it's unbelievable because my daughter's a junior this year so she's got a lot of senior friends and then you know kids that have been around forever that we've known since they were two so we've been traveling all over so that is impacting my diving a little bit glad to see him get out and do some stuff and then so we're talking about lake six not lake 16 uh, ann arbor five again this weekend i've heard they're talking about yes Right now, it looks like it's going to be Sunday because Saturday looks like it's going to be two to four, which would not be a pleasant boat ride. And since there is no buoy, no, Bob is going to put the anchor down, go down first, and then do a tagline from the anchor line to the boat because he didn't want the newbies trying to go down on an anchor line, finding a boat in 165 foot of water, swimming sideways to it. Yeah, if you're not a tech diver... You need to go down a buoy to get the Ann Arbor Five, because otherwise, like you said, you're you're never going to see the boat. You're gonna you're gonna get halfway down the anchor line and need to and should be turning around. Because Ann Arbor Five is a for for those, and we'll, we'll do a little bit of review. The Ann Arbor Five was a uh, ferry vessel that would have rail cars on it, and it was used in the building of the Palisades nuclear plant off of South Haven. They sunk it as a breakwater. So it was at the end of its life. They sunk it. It was a breakwater to protect the crews working on the nuclear plant during construction, which was in the late 60s, I believe. Yeah. And then when the nuclear plant was, construction was complete, they refloated it, cut it in half, and uh, were scrapping it. So the aft end, which was about... uh, a third of the way back from the bow to the stern with the propeller, there's a bulkhead that they welded in. So you had this two thirds of a boat 
that was being dragged across the lake to be to be salvaged. In the process of being dragged across the lake or towed, uh, the bulkhead was leaking to a point that it could not maintain its buoyancy and it sunk below the waves. What it ended up doing, and it wasn't known until it was rediscovered in the, was it the late 80s or 90s? 80s. 80s. It had actually speared into the bottom. So the bulkhead is now under the, the floor of Lake Michigan, and it's speared, and it's at a severe angle greater than 45 degrees, probably almost 60 degrees. Actually, I think it's really only 30 is what they say, but when you're on it, it looks like you're It doesn't feel like 30. It's much cute than 30 degrees. I need to take a protractor out there. I think that might be something, too. Uh, we could get a, get a good angle on it. I guess it's possible. It, it, so things are so distorted underwater sometimes it's hard to tell. But there was a line, there's a buoy line that goes, and it's attached to the deck, which a deck, because it had rail cars on, you have steel rail decks where a railroad car would be on. A buoy is normally attached to that, and it was at 119 feet. Now the lake level changing, who knows what depth the buoy was attached to. But it's in 160 feet. So the bottom of the lake there is 160 feet deep. If you came down an anchor that was along, you're going to get down to 160 feet deep before you get to the shipwreck. To then come up, uh, about was it about 125, 130 is the center of the propellers. Right, they're 12 point 12 feet six inches. They're really nice four blades, good photo op. And that's why. Oh, I'm excellent! You see a lot of divers. That's their their photo op. And I've dove Ann Arbor five three or four times now over the years, and the some of the best visits I've ever had Lake Michigan has been on there. I've it's it's a I, I love coming down anchor lines. When you have a thermocline where you can't see through the thermocline, so you at the surface, vis is about eight feet. You break through that thermocline and it opens up and you have vis of 150 feet or 200 feet. I remember coming through the thermocline, I can see the deck of the ship and I can see the whole floor of Lake Michigan just opened up. So just a beautiful deck. And if you're a tech diver and you can go to like, uh, 170 feet, it's an excellent dive. Where else do you get to dive a, a vessel like that? In a unique configuration, speared into the bottom. Yeah, a little different. So one of the best dives, especially for tech divers. Ironside is a nice one too, though. Ironside's a nice one, but it is it is losing its niceness every year. Every time I dove on it, probably the first time five, six years ago, and that's at 125 feet, I think. Yeah. Or 120. And what that is, that's a, a double boiler. It had a one one engine was called Jack and the other was Jill. It was a I'm trying to remember the exact technical name of the boiler, but it would have you know a piston on one side, one on the other, and they'd rock back and forth. And those were from the humpback type of vessels, where there was a big arch. If you look at the naval architecture in the Great Lakes, there's a period of time where they made these arches to stiffen the back of the vessels because Lake Michigan having shorter wave lengths than you'd have in the ocean, uh, you get a trough underneath the, the vessel and it cracks and sinks. That's called hogging arches. <coughs> so you've got those nice arches and you see them on many vessels at that time period and Ironsides is one of them. And those arches are still there. Now they've... They were 
parallel to each other, and now they've leaned together and they're touching. Yeah. Uh, and there used to be decking, and I never saw the decking, but the decking's now mm. gone. Yeah. So you've got 30, your... 40 years ago, that was a penetration wreck mm-hmm. with two decks. All yeah. of that's totally gone. Yeah. So the the draw is, of course, the propeller, shaft, yes, Jack and Jill, and uh-huh. the arches, and a lot of rubbish. Yeah, and if you're a penetration diver, you can still some people will dive through the uh, the boilers, and you can come up and out them. Uh, it is a wreck with a lot of fishing tackle on it, so you are going to get tons of line on you when you go through that wreck. It's kind of almost like cobwebs, like if you go through a an old house or barn and there's a ton of cobwebs, you just cannot avoid them. And that's the way the fishing tackle. If you like to collect fishing tackle, it's a nice. Yeah. And I have dove that one a number of times. And every time I dive it, I see something a little different. That's another one. That's beautiful. The first time I dove it, we came down, it was buoyed. A lot of times it's not buoyed when we get out there. Cause we're fairly, we're usually on there by mid May on that wreck. And when you come down on the line, just to see the wreck exposed to you as visibility clears as you go down. That's a beautiful dive. We have had some good viz in the last five years. Yes. Now, most of the times on that wreck, it's been good viz out there. That's out, That one's out of Grand Haven, I believe. Yeah. So, nice dive. So, uh, and that's, that's another good one, especially if you're in a deeper side of things. Uh, that's within recreational depth for most agencies, uh, but it's recommended that you have a bailout. I don't know anybody who dives that wreck that doesn't have a bailout. I'll buddy out with people with bailouts. I'm, I, that's a, on my short list of things to get. I'm a bad guy. Need to get a bailout. Now I have more things I need to get than I don't get. But I do have a dry suit, which we never thought would happen. <laughs> So I'd like to thank everybody in the chat room tonight. We had, uh, let me see who I can pull. We had Mark uh, from California. We had Flyboy, a local diver, and we had St. Louis Sam. So thank you for being in the chat room. Thank WRVO Radio for putting us in the air another year. If you like hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors, WRVO Radio has podcasts for you. Or probably not even podcasts, they're live. You can uh, follow them on their website, RenoViolaOutdoors.com. They have their app. You can tune in and, and listen there. Uh, they, they're broadcasting all the time and something to listen to. And thanks for putting us on the air. You can listen to us on iTunes. Uh, we are on Twitter, at ScoobObsessed, Facebook.com forward slash ScoobObsessed. Someday I'll get back in the Google. I see Google's done some updates, but don't. We do have a Google Plus, which I never seem to update. The website is www.scubaobsessed.com, and we will be updating it. We're getting much closer than we ever have been in recent times. I'll get that going. Uh, so, do you anything you want to plug, Mick? No, if you're not diving, I don't know what the excuse is. Get out there, people. You're probably like me, and you have a bunch of kids graduating. But it is beautiful, perfect not always perfect weather every day, but just a perfect time of the year to find an excuse. Get out there and get in the water. Well, let's see here. I think it's time for that part of the show. That's what I've been waiting for. Well, let's, uh, we have uh, Rod from New Zealand sent me one. 
this last week. So I've got some others that have been marinating, but maybe we'll, we'll go ahead and jump on to his. Patty and Mick were both scuba divers. Patty said to Mick, I'm getting circumcised tomorrow. Mick says, I had that done when I was just a few days old. Patty asked, does it hurt? Mick says, well, I couldn't walk for about a year. (laughs) That's one thing I wouldn't want to have done while I can remember it. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) My wife, a story. Uh, There's a lot of discussion going on now, and we're not going to take a side one way or another, but a lot of people are saying that it's an unnecessary procedure unless you're doing it for religious reasons. And one of the people my wife worked with, her father, who had never been circumcised, had a medical condition where the fix, because of infections and other problems he's having, was to be circumcised, and he was 80. And they said there's nothing worse than an 80-year-old man being circumcised. He said it hurt like you wouldn't believe. I would believe it, and yes. it must have been a hell of a right infection to want to put that you know put yourself through yeah, that. I would think so, unless somebody was just like, "Hey, I'm down one circumcision for the month. I need one more." Hey, hey, Bob, who's eighty, let's get yours done. Yeah, that'd be a hard. That'd be a tough sell job. I would. Well, it's like taking your tonsils out. I was 30-something. I still got mine. At least I got, you know, uh, I didn't get all the ice cream because I like, I'm trying to remember what it was I had. Some kind of drink they made me was great. Vodka? No. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been okay. (laughs) Apricot, that's what it was. I don't know what it was. Apricot just soothed my throat like crazy. It was great. I've got my toddles, I got my appendix, I got my gallbladder. So I'm yeah, probably due for all that stuff to kiss, run out. Yeah, you, know, you better knock on wood because that's what usually gets up. That's oh, usually what gets it? Well, because uh, we had, uh, gosh, we're going to, this this one's going to go on forever. But uh, Jim Kleeman, my dive buddy, he had like emergency appendix a year or so ago. And that went from, you know, he's everything's fine. And then in the afternoon he goes, something hurts. And then... Uh, you know, an hour later, there is an emergency surgery. So it can go quick. Yep. On that positive note, <laughs> let's go out there and get wet. And stay safe, people. Recording has been completed. Woohoo! That was a long one. Yeah, it's after 12.